This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. So this podcast had an exciting moment this week when we were featured on a post on the Vulture website. So if you're listening to this because of that, welcome. And whomever was in charge of getting that story posted, thank you so much. You brought me a lot of extra traffic. And to my returning listeners, welcome back. I was glad to see that the Leon Crane story was super popular. I love stories like that. And as you can see, I'm doing another one this week, only on a much larger scale. But before we get into that, I have a couple of promos I wanted to share. And remember, if you guys want to have your promo featured at the top of the show, you can contact me via email or through the Facebook page. So first up, I have a promo for a podcast that one of my best good pod people is involved with, and she's actually one of my co-hosts from my other podcast, Death Rattle. So check out the promo and give her show a listen. Hey everybody, we're Acts of Pod. I'm Gina. I'm Anne. And we are a comedy history political science podcast and every week we pick a story out of the news that's gotten a lot of attention and we try to provide a historical context for it and over here actually has an advanced degree in history i do but i also like to laugh and that's what gets me through life it's just a a couple of of lifelong friends having a chuckle we uh, lean a bit leftward. We're, we're, we're definitely feminists. And we're just trying to organize a revolution to, to overthrow the patriarchy and um, white supremacy. It's no big deal. <laughs> if you want in, the revolution may not be televised, but it will be potted. So um, give, give her a listen. We'd love to have you. Yeah. All right. That sounds good. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thanks. We'll appreciate it. Axopod, we are on iTunes and on Libsyn. Um, (laughs) Anyway, thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. And this next promo is for a true crime podcast out of the UK that I recently discovered and immediately binged the entirety of. My name is Andy. I am the writer and the host of the No Remorse podcast. No Remorse is a British true crime podcast which tells the disturbing stories of some of Britain's worst killers. 
No Remorse is a no-holds-barred show, so you can expect graphic descriptions of extreme violence. It is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Each episode will focus on one offender, or sometimes multiple offenders, who have committed crimes which have shocked the nation. Psychopaths, sociopaths, savages, serial killers, spree killers and everything in between will be explored in great detail. You can find No Remorse on all major podcast providers including iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and TuneIn. So I hope you will give those podcasts a listen and maybe even subscribe. So lastly, before we get into this week's story, I wanted to remind you that the anniversary show for this podcast is coming up on May 1st, going to be a two-year anniversary, which is kind of hard to believe. And I'm doing a listener episode, so I've got a variety of people that are submitting either in written form or in audio form their hometown homicide or their pet case of choice etc. And I would love for you guys to submit your stories to play in that episode. There's still time if you want to get your submission in. I'm just requesting to have them all by about the 28th of April, so you've got about another week. If you have any questions about length, time, etc., you can always shoot me a message uh, through the Facebook page. And otherwise, you can email your submissions to midnightsunmurder at gmail. And I look forward to hearing from you guys. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into tonight's story, which I've titled The Battle of Dutch Harbor. So I've been wanting to tackle this topic for a long time, but knew that it would be a pretty large undertaking, at least on the research side. World War II was obviously an incredibly complicated subject with numerous battles and theaters, with likely thousands of books written about every facet of the war. And despite taking place over the course of only six years, the war drastically altered the landscape of the entire world and resulted in nearly 100 million deaths. It's also likely one of the main historical events that most of us learned about in school especially if you grew up in one of the countries that were involved. Germany, Italy, Japan, Great Britain, the U.S., China, Soviet Union, Hungary, Romania, Slovakia, Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, Croatia, Finland, France, Australia, Belgium, Bolivia, Brazil, Canada, Denmark, Greece, Mexico, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, Poland, and the many countries involved in and affected by the campaigns throughout Africa. This long list of countries makes up two teams, the Axis and the Allies, and the various countries that supported each side. I grew up with a father that knows pretty much everything about the subject, having read probably easily a hundred books on the topic over the years. And it's likely because of this, I've always been interested in war stories. I've read many books and seen many movies about World War II, and I even took a film class that was focused on the subject. And with so many World War II stories out there, it's understandable that some would just be covered more in pop culture than others. 
especially the most horrific aspects like German concentration camps, and of course the most dramatic stories like the D-Day invasion of Normandy. You've likely seen at least one movie about one of these very well-known events. But there are so many more interesting and important World War II stories out there that rarely get coverage in the pop culture landscape, and countless unsung heroes that rarely get any recognition. There were actually several World War II events that took place in and around Alaska, and yet I never learned about them in school, and I'm willing to bet that many Alaskans have no idea that parts of Alaska were actually attacked and invaded by the Imperial Japanese Navy. This period of conflict, known as the Aleutian Campaign, raged for over a year, and many American soldiers made the ultimate sacrifice in this forgotten war and their stories deserve to be told. The Aleutian campaign, though comparatively small scale, ended up actually having great strategic significance, and it's a fascinating story, at least to a history nerd like me. So even if you aren't big into history, I hope you give this series a listen anyways. So let's dive back in time 78 years. The year is 1941. The highest-grossing film is Sergeant York, a World War I movie starring Gary Cooper. Citizen Kane was released, which, nearly eight decades later, still sits at the number one spot of the American Film Institute 100 Greatest Film List. Though, to be honest, even though I really do love classic cinema, I find it to be boring as hell. One of the top songs that year was this Andrew Sisters Jam. I have to admit, I kind of like it. A song actually gets stuck in my head on an alarming basis. <laughs> now, I would mention television shows for that year, but very few families had televisions. They were prohibitively expensive. The cheapest set at the time ran about 200, which would be $3,500 in today's money. And speaking of $3,500, that was the average yearly salary at the time. But put that into perspective, you could pretty much just about buy a house for that amount. Families would actually just gather together in the evening and listen to radio shows for entertainment, a form of entertainment which is not dissimilar to how us podcast junkies pass the time. So, now that you're sufficiently back in time, let's get into the war story. By the latter half of 1941, World War II had been raging for two years but the United States was reticent to get involved. This was for many reasons, including the fact that World War I had only ended 20 years prior, and many families were still strongly feeling the effects. Although the U.S. suffered a relatively low casualty number of 100,000 men, many of those that survived experienced lifelong issues as the result of shell shock, which is what we now know as PTSD. However, in December 1941, America was quickly thrust into the war 
and Japan staged an airstrike on the Pearl Harbor Naval Base on the island of Oahu in Hawaii. 2,400 people lost their lives, including 68 civilians. Dozens of ships and nearly 200 aircraft were damaged or destroyed. The U.S. now had no choice but to declare war against Japan, which FDR did the very next day. And within just a few days, we also had declared war against the other members of the Axis, Germany and Italy. In April 1942, a retaliatory air raid took place by the U.S. against the Japanese island of Honshu, home of Tokyo. It was called the Doolittle Raid, named after its general, Jimmy Doolittle. It was the first American attack on Japanese homeland, and it was a decisive victory for the United States. This was a huge morale booster for the U.S., and Doolittle became a national hero. Coincidentally, Doolittle had spent much of his childhood in Nome, Alaska, where his father had moved in pursuit of gold at the turn of the century. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Galvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now the immediate japanese response to the doolittle raid was to murder around 10,000 chinese civilians simply because China had helped some of Doolittle's raiders escape after the attack. However, there was still a massive Japanese retaliation effort on the horizon. The Japanese Navy came up with a plan for Operation MI, with the goal to seize Midway Island and further cripple the U.S. Navy in the process. Midway Atoll is a tiny island of only 2.5 square miles. However, its location at the very end of the Hawaiian archipelago made it a good strategic location for the United States to have both a naval and submarine base. Japan wanted to invade Midway Island to extend their Pacific perimeter. Japan had already successfully invaded the U.S. territory of Wake Island, 1,100 miles east of Midway. This had happened actually at the same time as the Pearl Harbor attack, and Japan would occupy the island until the end of the war. That success had buoyed them into thinking that invading another remote island would be just as easy. They also did not think that United States would expect an invasion at that location, and assumed that they would reign victorious because Midway was so far from Pearl Harbor that they didn't expect to meet much resistance in invading. They also hoped that if they could pull off another victory as successful as the Pearl Harbor attack, specifically in regards to the destruction of aircraft carriers, that it would force the United States out of the Pacific theater altogether. The Imperial Japanese Navy must have felt truly unstoppable at this point. In just the first few months of the U.S. entering the war, 
Japan had invaded Guam, Thailand, Indochina, Hong Kong, Manila, Singapore, Malaya, Java, Burma, and the Solomon Islands. Worse yet, Japan had successfully invaded the Philippines, which led to the deaths of 150,000 Filipino and American soldiers, which was the worst defeat in American history. They were on a path of invasion and destruction, heading straight towards the United States. At this point in time, the Japanese Navy actually hadn't lost naval battle in over 100 years, and they had the end goal of total domination over the Pacific. In fact, their sights would be set on Australia once they completed their mission of completely destroying the U.S. Navy. Things were not looking good for the Allies. They planned the attack on Midway for the first week of June, 1942. It was going to be the largest naval operation in Japanese history. Nearly their entire fleet would be involved. They had the mistaken belief that they had nearly decimated the U.S. Navy and that they would meet little resistance in invading this island. Many of their fleet would be headed to Midway, but not all of them. The Japanese Naval Command had a diversionary tactic planned. Part of the fleet would be heading north to Alaska. There they would attack and attempt to invade some of the Aleutian Islands. This would be happening on June 3rd with the hopes that much or all of the U.S. Navy stationed at Pearl Harbor would be drawn north to aid in the conflict there. Then on June 4th, the Japanese planned to strike at Midway while the U.S. had its backs turned. However, they didn't account for one thing. The U.S. had incredibly smart cryptographers that had been working nonstop to crack JN-25, which was the Japanese Naval Communications Code. And just weeks before the MI operation was to begin, they cracked it. The U.S. quickly learned of the impending two-pronged attack and scrambled to prepare for it. The Navy was able to essentially set up an ambush and was victorious in defending Midway and inflicted massive damage against the Japanese Navy. The Battle of Midway actually was a huge turning point in the war because after the American victory there, the Allies began to believe that they would win the war. It was also a massive blow to the morale of Japan. They had greatly underestimated the American military. One quote would later sum it up very succinctly in saying they had awakened a sleeping giant. And while the Battle of Midway is an incredibly well-known moment in American history, what is much less spoken about is the diversionary tactic, which itself was instrumental in turning the tides of war. When the U.S. Navy learned of the planned simultaneous attacks, they had to make the decision as to how best make use of their greatly outnumbered fleet. They considered gathering the majority of the Pacific fleet near Midway to defend it and let the Aleutians be taken, because they realized that splitting the fleet up to defend both places would make it pretty weak at both locations, but they really had no better options than to do just that because the location of the Aleutians made them too strategically important to give up. 
Alaska was a thoroughfare for aircraft and supplies being delivered to the Soviet Union as part of the Lend-Lease Act. So if the Japanese could take control of part of the Aleutian Islands and extend their perimeter up into the Bering Sea, they could block our allies from getting those supplies. Even before Pearl Harbor, many military officials believed that Japan was going to launch a Pacific attack against Hawaii and or Alaska. And as a massive yet sparsely populated U.S. territory, Alaska would require a much larger military presence to defend it from possible invasion. Many new airfields had been built throughout Alaska and Canada to assist in the transport of aircraft and supplies. The last one heading west was Ladd Field in Fairbanks, which I discussed in the Leon Crane episodes. Once the aircraft and supplies were there, Russian allies would then transfer the supplies back through Russia to aid in their fight against Germany. Other changes made in the state as the result of the war include a 1,600-mile highway connecting B.C. to Alaska. This was built in only eight months with the combined efforts of nearly 19,000 soldiers and civilians from both countries. 300 new military installations were built throughout the state, and during the decade from 1940 to 1950, the population of military personnel went from 500 to over 20,000, while the civilian population doubled from 72,000 to 129,000. So, down at Pearl Harbor, the Navy had made the decision to send part of their fleet up to defend the Aleutians. The problem was that even with the communications they had decoded from the Japanese, they still weren't certain which Aleutian island was going to be attacked. If you're unfamiliar with Alaskan geography, the Aleutian chain consists of upwards of 300 islands which extend out in a 1,200-mile-long arc from mainland Alaska, arcing up towards Russia. In fact, the last few islands that are geographically linked to this chain actually belong to Russia. The North Pacific Fleet would be headed by Rear Admiral Robert Theobald, who was supposed to work hand-in-hand with Major General Simon Buckner, who was the commander of the Army troops stationed in the Aleutians. The two men would repeatedly butt heads and were never able to have a civil working relationship. Let me just give you a bit of background on Buckner because he was a highly decorated war hero, partly for his actions during the Aleutian campaign. He was actually the son of a Confederate Lieutenant General from Kentucky. As of 1940, he was a Brigadier General and was sent to Alaska to head the Alaska Defense Force. This force would eventually grow to more than 100,000 men all throughout the state. He was both respected and admired by his men, and he fell in love with Alaska, and even bought property here with the plan to retire here after the war. After successfully overlooking the Aleutian campaign, Buckner ended up involved in an attack on Okinawa, and he became the most highly decorated military member to be killed by enemy artillery during the war. He was posthumously promoted to four-star general. So suffice it to say, he knew what he was talking about, and he'd already been in Alaska for a couple of years, but Theobald didn't want to listen to him. 
Unalaska on Amaknak Island was a likely location for an attack for a variety of reasons. It was the location of Dutch Harbor, which was in a prime location for ships to access either the Bering Sea or the Pacific Ocean. And it was the home of Dutch Harbor Naval Base and Fort Mears Army Base. At the time, there were around 5,000 military men stationed between these two bases. Buckner wanted to have the majority of defense in the Dutch Harbor area, but Theobald insisted on having defense spread out along the entire Aleutian chain, despite the fact that they didn't have nearly a large enough fleet for this plan to make any sense. Adding to the difficulty of the situation, the weather outlook indicated heavy fog, rain, and wind for the next couple of weeks, combined with the general low temperature of the region, which has an average high temperature of 51 degrees in June. So on June 3rd, 1942, six aircraft carriers and 11 battleships, plus more than 80 aircraft, were heading towards Dutch Harbor. It would be the first time in nearly 100 years that continental U.S. territory would be attacked by a foreign power. The fleet was easily able to pass through Theobald's defensive line. The men stationed on Amaknak had to deal with some pretty extreme circumstances. The quarters for men in these locations were unfinished, and just about all activities at the bases took place in tent buildings, which did not do well in the high winds in the area. And as one lieutenant would later describe it, quote, only the periodic collapse of the tents relieved the monotony. <laughs> and when it came to the impending attack, there were even more aspects working against the U.S. The runways at the airfield were not completely finished, and they made takeoffs and landings pretty dangerous. But likely the biggest problem was the inferior communication system between the different Aleutian bases. And to top it off, Admiral Theobald wasn't even on the island at the time of the attack, because not only did they not know the exact date of the attack, but he just refused to admit that Buckner was likely right about the attack occurring there. So the fates seemed to be perfectly aligned for the Japanese as they prepared to bomb Dutch Harbor around 5 a.m. on June 3rd. The airstrike began, and the first casualties occurred within minutes when a mail plane was hit and two civilians died. However, not long into the attack, the barracks at Fort Mears were destroyed, taking the lives of 25 men and injuring many more. Because of the communication difficulties, none of the other bases could be contacted and warned that they too might soon be under attack as well. There was also an issue in relation to the fact that few of the U.S. aircraft stationed in the area were equipped with radar, which is going to make it damn near impossible to locate the Japanese ships in the miserable weather and poor visibility. The initial airstrike lasted just minutes. And other than the barracks collapse, it caused nowhere near as much damage as the Japanese intended. The next day, there was another attack on Dutch Harbor, and this involved much more casualties as many aircraft on both sides either crashed or disappeared at sea. A couple of men survived having their plane crash, but were picked up by Japanese ships while they were in the water, 
and taken back to Japan as prisoners of war. Ironically, however, the bad weather and fog had likely led to far less casualties than might have happened otherwise, because the two opposing sides were having a really hard time finding each other. During the day of this second attack, Japanese forces received word that the Battle of Midway was going poorly. Ironically, their plan to divert attention by attacking the Aleutians had in turn weakened their own fleet at Midway and was one of the main reasons that they lost the battle there. If the Japanese hadn't chosen to attack the Aleutians, who knows how different the world could be now. But despite the fact that Midway was going poorly, the North Pacific Japanese fleet did not decide to head back south, but to press on with their Aleutian plans. They hoped that further easy victories here would lead to improved morale. In fact, the rest of their Aleutian plans had actually already taken place during the Dutch Harbor battle, but no one yet knew it due to the poor communication systems. The Battle of Dutch Harbor was a short-lived event and pretty small scale in the grand scheme of World War II. Less than 100 men died and the infrastructure damage was not nearly as bad as it could have been. But in the grand scheme of things, it actually helped the United States because other than the weakened Japanese fleet at Midway, another very important thing came out of the short-lived battle. You see, at this time in the war, the Japanese fighting aircraft, which was known as a Zero, was far superior to anything the Americans had at their disposal. But a month after the Dutch Harbor skirmish, a U.S. military aircraft spotted a crash-landed Zero on a small island. Amazingly, the craft was almost entirely intact, which was the first of its kind that the Allies had access to during the war. And they used the craft to aid in the development of the F-6F Hellcat, which would go on to dominate the skies for the rest of the Pacific theater. So that's all I've got for you for the Battle of Dutch Harbor. But next time around, I will tell you about what the Japanese were up to at that same time and another part of the Aleutians. But I did want to end on a funny note. After the battle, some new aircraft arrived for the Americans that had radar. And when they were testing it up way up high, they thought they detected some enemy ships below them. So they did an airstrike and they went down to see what kind of damage they inflicted. And they realized they had killed the Privilof Islands. And that was known as the Battle of the Privilof Islands. I just thought that was pretty damn funny. But that's all I've got for you this time around. And I'll see you guys next time.